Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for today's podcast is Matthew Myers, an attorney and president of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, a privately funded organization established to reduce tobacco use and its devastating consequences in the United States and around the world. Mr. Myers has been involved from the very beginning with tobacco control efforts and has had a major impact on the world's tobacco scene. He's won numerous prizes for his work and has been honored in various ways, a person I consider a, pub consider a public health hero. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So the topic today is how can we learn from the tobacco experiences in the world of food, nutrition, and obesity? So let's uh, just get some basic facts about tobacco if we can. What's happening with tobacco rates in, in the U.S. and smoking rates in the U.S. and around the world? Um, the last decade has been um, a triumph for tobacco efforts in the United States. We've seen youth smoking rates go from over 36% in 1997 to hovering around 20% today. We've seen adult smoking rates drop slower but continue to drop. Uh, at the other, on the other hand, we're at a crossroads. Um, we have not seen a significant reduction in the last several years. And if we're to realize the full benefit of continuing to reduce tobacco use, we're going to have to do more and do it more effectively. You know Around the globe, we're facing a catastrophe. Um, if uh, current trends continue, one billion people will die this century from tobacco use. Let me try to put that in perspective. Uh, in the 20th century, 100 million people around the world died from tobacco. In the first 25 years of this century, 150 million people will die from tobacco globally unless the trend line is changed. The good news is tobacco is the one issue for which there is a world treaty and a consensus on what needs to be done. And we're beginning to see countries around the world take those steps and take them seriously. So I know you're highly involved in these international efforts, and I'd like to talk about that. But let's uh, focus for a moment on the victories in the U.S. Certainly tobacco hasn't gone away, but the fact that you know half or so of the people smoke now that used to be the case seems a huge public health victories, and you can probably count the number of lives saved in the you know, in the millions from that kind of an effort over a period of time. So that's a very impressive accomplishment. The success in tobacco has translated into live safe. We've seen it dramatically. Um, we've seen a dramatic reduction in lung cancer rates, particularly among men. We've seen a dramatic drop in heart disease as a result of tobacco use. And we've seen a drop in the number of premature babies born with serious medical problems directly related to the decrease in tobacco use. The cut in tobacco use is responsible for a very significant portion of the fact that Americans are living longer, living healthier. If we're going to succeed with our health care efforts, we're going to need to continue to tackle tobacco, diet, and obesity. Otherwise, we can't afford the health care bill that this nation is facing. All right. So the, this, the tobacco victories were very hard won, I know, and the uh, result of a lot of people with a lot of persistence, courage, insight, and, um, and, and thinking that something absolutely needs to be done. What are some of the things that occurred in the U.S. that led to the decreased tobacco use? Um, in tobacco, uh, I think the key for the change is the combination of science with 
um, better public education work, along with real hard-nosed politics, recognizing what it takes to bring about change in our society, people working with legislators and policymakers, opinion makers, um, to change public attitudes and public policy. As a result, what we've seen is a dramatic increase in the number of states that prohibit smoking indoors so that no one is exposed to secondhand smoke. We've seen a dramatic rise in the increase in the tax on tobacco products, which is a tribute, which has caused a significant portion of the decline. And in a number of states, we've seen them develop comprehensive tobacco control programs that have been highly effective. Connecticut, where we sit today, is surrounded by Massachusetts and New York, both of whom in the past have had effective tobacco control programs and have seen dramatic reductions in tobacco use. So you use the term hard-nosed politics. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, in the case of tobacco, there was a very powerful industry that, and I'm an outsider to this, but it seemed had no uh, hesitation to fight dirty, to, 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 do, to lie about the science, do a lot of things like that. Um, is that overstatement about the behavior of the industry, and how did, did you and others go about countering that? If anything, it's probably an understatement. Um, this is an industry that the courts have found have lied about the health effects of their products, have lied uh, about their targeting of youth, um, have lied about things like light and low tar cigarettes, which millions of people switched to thinking they were safer when the industry knew they weren't safer in that, and have not hesitated to use all of their economic muscle um, to try to stymie the political process. The good news is tobacco is also a story of how when enough people speak up um, and enough organizations come together, uh, politicians will listen. And so we have seen a dramatic change, despite the fact that it continues to be a David versus Goliath battle. You know, it's interesting because very often people will ask me, um, how can you counter the very heavy influence of the powerful food industry players? And one of the responses I often give is, boy, if it could happen with tobacco, it could happen anywhere. No one should underestimate how difficult it is to get public officials to do the right thing in the face of the overwhelming power of the tobacco industry. On the other hand, what we have discovered is that when communities speak out and make clear their concern about the health effects of tobacco use, when tobacco industry marketing to our children is exposed, we see more and more politicians willing to step up to the plate, doing what they know is popular, even though they know that the industry will criticize them. So the specific targeting of vulnerable populations looks like it's a theme that's been effective in tobacco control. I mean, exposing that practice. There have been several themes that I think are vitally important. The evidence that the tobacco industry has long known just how harmful their products are and have lied about it, but also the fact that the evidence now shows that the industry carefully, calculatedly targeted our children and continue to, to carefully and calculate target minority communities, inner-city communities, um, low-income communities, recognizing that if they can get a young person to start, it's a highly addictive product and they likely have a lifelong consumer. You know, there, there just seem to be so many parallels with what's happening with the food industry. Certainly the targeting of youth is something that's not hidden. In fact, the companies um, and the ad agencies get awards for doing it well. And it's certainly legal, and that wasn't the case with tobacco. Um, but when the industry makes pledges that are meant to forestall government action, to, 
to buy uh, public support and things like that. When they say things, well, we're not going to market to children. We're only going to market our healthiest products to children. We're going to clean up the food environment in schools and things like that. How do do you decide whether to believe them or not and how much to trust those promises given the behavior of the tobacco industry? I can't speak to the food industry. What we have found with the tobacco industry is that their pledges were nothing more than charades designed to prevent government from taking responsible action to regulate the product in their marketing. The tobacco industry adopted voluntary advertising code. They made a pledge to tell the truth to their consumers. Uh, What we've learned is that those pledges were nothing more designed to give political cover um, to politicians who were doing their bidding. In the end, what we found is that self-regulation by the tobacco industry doesn't work and won't work. So I guess one lesson to be learned is that as a default, we wouldn't want to take the food industry at its word given the tobacco industry behaved in in such a terrible way. Um, It doesn't mean the food industry is the same. It doesn't mean they're going to behave the same. But it doesn't seem like you'd want to give them the benefit of the doubt from the beginning. What I think it does mean is that the problems caused by tobacco as well as the problems caused by um, diet and obesity impact this nation so broadly, indeed the world so broadly, that we need a uniform set of rules the companies don't have a choice as to whether they're going to obey or not to obey. The health care costs, the societal costs are too great that we shouldn't just trust the people who caused the problem to be the solution. So the, the First Amendment of the Constitution protects the ability of companies to market their products. It's called commercial speech. And you being an attorney, you understand that a lot better than I do. Um, how far can government go in um, in in restricting First Amendment rights then, or it should wouldn't even look at it that way. Well, you know, we as a nation need to be sensitive to restricting commercial speech um, and the right of, of individuals to speak out. What we're talking about here with regard to the tobacco industry is an industry that has marketed its products in deceptive ways and not told the truth. The government can take strong action to ensure that that no longer continues. We also have an industry that has targeted children. It's illegal to sell tobacco products to children. Um, there's a national consensus that we don't want youth to smoke. There's, it's pretty clear that government has a constitutional and legal right to step in the way and prevent tobacco companies from engaging in those kinds of behaviors as well. So that there's much that we can do. Equally important is the government itself should be a speaker. It should conduct its own public education campaign so that the industry can't deceive consumers, so that people understand the impact of tobacco, so that they realize that when a tobacco company um, markets a product as less hazardous, that it's not. When a tobacco company denies that a product is addictive, it's false. And so that people truly understand the full health consequences of the behavior. There's a possibility, if you'd like, to take public policy action to work at either the federal or state and local levels. Um, how do you think that through, and what, what kind of course did the tobacco victories follow with, that, with regard to that issue? I think the critical question is, um, at what level of government will you get the strongest action um, that will be the most effective? In tobacco, it turned out that starting at the local level and state level, was far more effective in terms of public policy change. Not only did it allow us to test out different um, approaches to see which worked best, 
Um, but it also minimized the impact of the tobacco industry's overwhelming financial advantage over public health advocates. Um, so as a result, on tobacco, what we learned was that policies like protection against secondhand smoke, um, restrictions on illegal sales to youth, were far more effective when begun at the state and local level. So how do you make those contagious? If you get victories here and there, how do you get other places to get interested in doing the same thing? Um, I think that's our responsibility. Uh, on it. it doesn't happen automatically. That I think those who work in public health, those who are concerned about the health of our children and our nation, need to, as a concerted manner, roll up their sleeves and engage in old-time, old-fashioned politics. They need to make sure that their legislators in their state know what the other state did. And they also need to make clear that it's unacceptable that one state is protecting their children against tobacco marketing and another state isn't. That one children is one state is protecting its citizens against the harms caused by secondhand smoke, and another state isn't. So this is a combination where science and political activity have to come together. Let's talk for a moment about the state attorneys general. Um, there's discussion now, uh, in fact, a lot of discussion about the role the state AGs, attorneys general, can play in the the fight against obesity and on nutrition issues. In fact, my Red Center colleague, Jennifer Pomeranz, just published a paper in the American Journal of Public Health on this topic. But there's such a long history of the AGs being involved in the tobacco wars, and certainly they had a very visible role. Can you tell us what role they played, and do you think that might be important here in the, the obesity area? In tobacco, um, the state attorney generals have played a very important role. Beginning in 1994, um, the state of Mississippi, followed by many other states, sued the tobacco industry, in that case on the theory that tobacco caused disease, was costing the states billions of dollars in Medicaid and other costs. They also included in their claims that much of the harm was caused by the tobacco industry's deception and advertising to youth. Uh, as a result of their lawsuit, Millions of pages of secret tobacco industry documents were disclosed that changed the public debate in a very important and significant way. And the tobacco industry was required to agree to a modest set of advertising restrictions and significant payments to the states. I, I don't know what the issues are with regard to food, but in the case of tobacco, the state attorney generals were one of the most important actors. So the, when you talked about the significant payments to the state, that came about as uh, the result of something called the Master Settlement Agreement. Can you explain what that was, and do you think it ended up having a positive effect? Did it, are there lessons to be learned from that that other areas may borrow from? Sure. Um, the states began their lawsuits against the tobacco industry in 1994. In 1998, they entered into a settlement which was called the Master Settlement Agreement. The Master Settlement Agreement included a number of different provisions. Um, it, vitally important, it included a number of advertising strict restrictions, uh, which the tobacco industry agreed to and then were mandated by the courts. It required payments to the states, but it did not require that the states spend the money on tobacco control, despite promises by many public officials. And for a short period of time, just five years, it required the tobacco industry um, to make payments to a new foundation now known as the Legacy Foundation, to conduct public education campaigns. There are a fair number of lessons to be learned from this. One is that the state attorney's general lawsuits had a major effect in disclosing previously secret information about the industry that impacted how tobacco control is approached in this country. That may be its 
most important effect. Um, the second is that the attorney generals both did something good and short-sighted um, when they put conditions on the payments by the industry to the Legacy Foundation, um, limiting it only to a five-year period. That f during that five-year period, the Legacy Foundation ran ad campaigns under the Truth uh, logo um, that had a significant effect on youth tobacco use. But the impact of that campaign has been dissipated um, as the payments were cut off. And then third, perhaps the most important lesson, is the failure of the states to require that at least some of the money paid to the states be used to address the problem that prompted the lawsuits, that is, the epidemic of tobacco use, particularly among youth, has really been a, a national tragedy. A number of states have used that money and have seen dramatic results. The majority of states haven't. And in the most recent economic crisis, what we've seen is state spending on tobacco control to fall, fall to its lowest level since 1999. Isn't California one of the states that uh, used some of the money wisely for the tobacco control effort and that's paid off in terms of smoking rates? Well, California has the longest standing tobacco control program but unfortunately, they never used the tobacco settlement money oh, for that. Um, California raised its tax on tobacco products in 1988 and developed a comprehensive tobacco control program that has continued to this date. As a result, California's smoking rates among adults are 13.5% compared to 20% nationally, and attitudes uh, about tobacco in California differ fundamentally from the rest of the country. California's program demonstrates that we know how to reduce tobacco use. Um, what needs to happen is that every state needs to adopt a comprehensive program like we've seen in California, but we've also seen it in, in New York, in Massachusetts, in Maine. Um, it's worked everywhere it's been tried. So given that there's such a clear payoff from that sort of thing, that there, is, there are things that can be done to stem the tide of tobacco smoking, the health care costs from those things are just stunning. I mean, they have savings in health care costs. Why don't, why don't they do it everywhere? Um, we don't make decisions based on quite such rational basis is, is the quick answer. Uh, as a nation, um, reducing tobacco use, reducing obesity, increasing physical fitness will do more for our economic health than anything else that we can do. And the economic benefits are not even long-term. With tobacco, what we see is that if you pass a smoke-free air law, <clears throat> you see an almost immediate decline in hospital emissions for heart disease. Massachusetts, when it covered smoking cessation, saw a very dramatic change in usage um, and in health benefits to it that rapidly translate into economic benefits. The answer is if we could get um, decision makers to align our economic well-being with rational choice, what they would discover is that tobacco control, as well as a real focus on reducing obesity and increasing physical fitness, would pay enormous dividends to the health of our economy. Frankly, for global competitiveness, we really can't afford to do anything else. A question I'd like to ask that does have direct parallels to what's happening in, in the obesity area now, especially with regard to the proposal for a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages, is that the, the, the food industry, the beverage people in particular, seem to have mobilized certain parts of the, com the minority community in opposition to, to the idea of a tax. 
where those those groups are getting money to some, not all, but some are getting money from those industries, and then they come out arguing against tax, saying that it's unfair, regressive, and it would hurt, hurt people in their community. Is there a parallel to what happened with discussion about things like tobacco taxes? Uh, there is a strong parallel. When people first proposed raising tobacco taxes as a way to discourage tobacco use, we heard a great deal from people that it was regressive and unfair to low-income communities. What they ignored was the heavy health care burden that smoking imposed on those very communities and the fact that the tobacco industry had targeted those communities, particularly because the tobacco industry saw them as vulnerable. But there's another important lesson, which is we no longer hear that argument um, as often on tobacco. And that's in large part because those working on tobacco have rolled up their sleeves and begun to work with the people in those communities so that those communities have begun to understand better and better that the they can no longer afford the health or economic impact of tobacco use. So they've now become supporters of the tobacco tax. A critical lesson from our point of view is um, the tobacco tax always was good health policy. It didn't become good politics until we had done the work to educate the public, the people who were most affected about it, about both the role of tobacco use and how the tobacco tax benefited their communities. This sort of leads naturally to, to the issue of the media and how important the media is in these social change efforts. What's been the experience with tobacco? The media is a vital partner. Um, the media is still the way most people get information, um, even though the media has changed over the last decade. What do I mean by that? Um, the media is a vital source of information for people about the health effects of tobacco, a vital source of information for people about the urgency and the need for action and the implications of inaction, and a vital source of information for people about the different solutions, the different things, so that it makes it work. The media is also important in another way, and that is the more the media covers an issue like tobacco, the more there's a sense that, there, it, that it's an issue that requires urgent and immediate action. And therefore, it's our role to help ensure that there is enough information and enough newsworthy events going on so that the media has a reason to be talking about these issues. There's another component to the media that, that is as important today, although more complicated, and that is many people still look to the editorial writers in the media, the blog writers now, um, the online postings um, for guidance um, on the right steps and wrong steps to take with regard to an action. We in the public health world need to pay attention to those places to ensure that they're provided with accurate, up-to-date, timely information so that they recognize the importance of tackling these issues. I've heard you say that there's surprising bipartisan support for tobacco control efforts, even with respect to things like tobacco taxes. Um, was that always the case, and what do you think explains that, where you, you might expect more conservative politicians to favor industry interests? Um, tobacco ha has been impacted by what I think is the increasing division between conservatives and non-conservatives in this country. Um, and, it, and, and it has affected some votes. At the same time, however, what we have discovered is that we're, we are 
able to garner bipartisan support for critical measures when we spend time working with individual legislators, when we take it out of the point of view of it's a broad characterization of government regulation um, and bring it down to a live issue. In June 2009, Congress passed a law giving the Food and Drug Administration broad regulatory authority over tobacco. It received broad support from conservatives and Republicans as well as Democrats and liberals. Why was that? Because they saw it as an issue, uh, as a true public health issue. They recognized the importance of, of the failure to require the tobacco industry to disclose critical information. They recognized the crisis to our nation of tobacco industry targeting of kids. Once we were able to get people to understand those issues, we were able to build support broadly. So that broad uh, regulatory authority over tobacco that has been granted government by that legislative act, was that a positive development, and if so, why? Uh, the, the legislation giving FDA jurisdiction over tobacco is, is historic. Um, it represents the single most important step the federal government has ever taken, both to rein in tobacco industry marketing to our children, to curtail tobacco industry's ability to deceive adults, um, and to um, have a government agency whose goal was public health in protecting citizens to regulate the manufacture and marketing of tobacco products rather than the tobacco industry who, whatever else they say, have one goal, and that is maximizing their profits. Well, there was some, I don't know if this was true, but I heard that, that one of the, at least one of the major tobacco players was in support of this legislation. Was that correct? In the end, Philip Morris um, did support the legislation. Why would they do that? Well, I can't speculate why, how a Philip Morris thinks. Um, I'll be perfectly honest about that. Um, my point of view has always been if the legislation was good legislation, if it will drive down smoking rates, if it will protect our citizens, if it will give the government the power to ensure that fewer Americans die, then the fact that a tobacco company supports it doesn't bother me one way or the other. Um, in this case, if Philip Morris has made a calculation that in a highly regulated environment there will be many fewer smokers but they may gain market share, as long as there are many fewer smokers and many fewer people dying, that's our interest. Okay, thank you. Uh, this has been incredibly illuminating, so I very much appreciate having you with us today. So thank you. Thank you. So our guest today was Matthew Myers, president of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, uh, a public health hero and individual that's long fought the tobacco wars and has had great success. Uh, please visit our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org for a list of resources in food and food policy issues, including a free email news newsletter you can subscribe to and a list of the other excellent guests we've had for podcasts. Thank you.